technology's great when it works. Right? <laughs> <laughs> always baffled me. I don't know. <laughs> One's like the interface to me seems really opaque. It's, it's a little hanky every now and again, but for the most part, it serves its purpose. You ready to get started? Yep, sure. Alright, 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 Leadheads, we are back with another episode of the Talking Lead Podcast. And I don't know exactly which number this is going to be, but it's in our 360 series, close to 370. And uh, continuing this series that I started a while back with Jack Carr, I've been having different writers and authors on this show. And it's it's been really good and interesting so far, so I thought I would continue it. And we reached out again to our, our good buddy David Brown over at Simon & Schuster. And uh, true to form, he has set us up with another very interesting cat to interview here. And my guest this episode is going to be Kyle Mills. And Kyle is the number one New York Times bestselling author of, get this, over 20 books. I mean, who has the time to write that many books? <laughs> Do the research that goes into it and whatnot. Uh, but Kyle took over um, a series of um, kind of thriller novels a while back from this uh, gentleman named Vince Flynn, and it's the Mitch Rapp series, which some of you listeners are probably familiar with and uh, have read those. So, Kyle, welcome into the Talking Lead podcast, man. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So, um, I, I kind of got into the the thriller novels through Jack Carr. I really kind of what drew me to the the Jack Carr series books was the realism, you know, the the research that he put into it, and he he tried to put as much realism into them as possible. And uh, from what I've heard from other people talk about the Mitch Rapp series, it's it's very similar to that. Yeah, you know, Vince started this quite a while ago. I mean, there were there are twenty. I think I'm working on the twentieth book in the series. And it follows the CIA operative, the, the CIA's top operative. I mean, it goes back from when he was in college to now when he's, I don't know, like 44 or something. Mm-hmm. And so Vince was really meticulous and he was a super popular author. He's one of the biggest authors in the world. Uh, and through that got to meet you know, a lot of amazing people. I mean, he hung out with President Bush. I mean, he knew a lot of people in the operator, you know, in the military, a lot of operators, CIA, FBI, that helped him out. And I'm kind of, I did it a little bit backward to that. My father was an FBI agent uh, for most of his career. He became the legal attache to the United Kingdom and then finally the director of Interpol. So I grew up around it. I mean, you say you know, that like of, nonchalantly, the director well, of Interpol. I mean, that's, that's pretty huge. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, certainly interesting. You know, I got to live all over the country. I got to live in London for a while. And um, yeah, and so I sort of absorbed that over my entire life. All our friends were always MI5, MI6, CIA, FBI, uh, wow. military. So you <laughs> I can't can imagine, imagine how fun that. that is. Well, I can't yeah, imagine. No, I mean, fun, I yeah. can only imagine. Yeah. <clears throat> so we, uh, you know, when I started writing novels, they say write what you know. And you know, I knew all those guys. So, and, you know, I had those characters in my head. I'd been hearing their stories my whole life. 
Um, so were you just kind of like a so fly on the wall when your dad's friends would come over and you would hear these stories? Or would you, as you got a little bit older and, you know, I guess interested in it, were they willing to sit down and talk to you about some of this stuff? Share oh, yeah. Stories? You know, I mean, obviously there's some classified stuff in there. I mean, sure. I, I remember one guy I knew, uh, they called him C. And I, I thought that was because his name started with C, but yeah. I didn't ever knew what he did for a living. But he was they in the James Bond movies. They they use M, and so he was <sighs> he was M. But you and it was <laughs> oh, I remember boy. it was illegal to take a picture of him. Really? Um, yeah. And so you know I got so sometimes you knew who you were talking to, other times not so much. So the head of um, MI six right there in your living room. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, you know, and I, it, here's a funny oh, story of how I figured out he was a big deal. We were driving to the American Bowl in London. That's a American football game, mm-hmm. and the traffic was horrible to get to the stadium. And um, he he was saying, me, my dad, and him were in the back car. His driver was driving, and he was really upset that we were going to miss the kickoff. And you know, my dad and I were like, you know, hey, what are you going to do, right? Stuck in traffic, and sure, suddenly some some police motorcycles came up and we jumped over the median and they closed the highway going the other way. We drove the wrong way up the highway and made it. And I thought, wow, I think this guy must be somebody. Membership has um, its privileges, right? <laughs> absolutely. And so, um, yeah, you know, when I, I started writing about an FBI agent and I've written about, you know, military guys that are kind of based on people I've known over the years and, Sometimes the scenarios and the things they get into uh, are stuff that I've heard about and then I've sort of twisted around. Because, you know, back then being an FBI agent was really, and now I think it's more cerebral, but mm-hmm. back then, you know, my father's been thrown out of second story windows and attacked by monkeys. <laughs> oh and my gosh. like, it's just like all kinds of crazy stories. Like train like, monkeys, the, train killer monkeys. <laughs> no, like, no, it was like uh, the, he was, uh, this is back before, you know, SWAT and, and, you know, now it's much more controlled, but yeah. he used to just drive out into Eastern Oregon and grab some, some sheriff's deputies or so, whoever he could find. And I think it was a biker gang or something he was trying to arrest. And they finally kicked in the door and, and he ran in and the guy had pet monkeys and the monkeys all freaked out and. We're crapping on, like running around, oh, going through the ceiling, crapping on everybody and attacking. Oh, yeah. So it, you know, it was just, it was really fun to hear those stories. Yeah, that's definitely a, a fun one. Now, have you implemented the uh, a killer attack monkeys in any of your novels? No, not yet, but someday. You've got to do that. Yeah. yeah I remember my father was trying to kick in the door. He's a really big guy. He was good at kicking in doors, and he was kicking it and kicking it and kicking it. And they had barricaded it with two by fours. And so he was trying to kick out the two by fours they found out later. And he had to go through a window or something. But (laughs) (laughs) got to be careful with the monkeys. (laughs) The Fiocchi family has been producing high quality ammunition since 1876. In 2020, Fiocchi's launching a full line of premium products. Everything from self and home defense to the long range categories. The Fiocchi Blue Guardian line will feature specially tuned products specifically for home and self defense. Featuring lead-free technology and the only NATO-certified zero-pollution primer in the world. Fiocchi's a proud sponsor of the Talking Lead Podcast and the Leadhead Brigade. Fiocchi trains, Fiocchi protects. So you started, uh, this isn't 
you know, kind of how you started your career. You you had uh, you've got an economics background, right? Yeah, I studied economics and I worked in corporate banking before. This is when I was pretty young, but um, yeah. before I got into writing, yeah. Yeah. So, has this always been a passion of yours? Or is this something that one day uh, you just on a whim decided to do? How did you get into writing? Yeah, kind of the second. Um, I. I was a really serious rock climber at the time. And I, so I basically did two things in my life. I worked at the bank and I climbed. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to do something creative because I had always admired people that could. And I didn't feel like I could. So I was going to learn to build furniture. That was my big plan. And uh, <laughs> Where did that my come wife, from? <laughs> you know, because I, I don't know. I just I thought it'd be fun. You know, it's construction. It's design. It. Like you'd something you could do with your hands. You could buy all kinds of cool. So you're like, gonna tools. make like Adirondack chairs or what? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking like modern, like really cool modern furniture. I had all the like grand ideas okay. about this amazing crap I was gonna build. I got you. And uh, my wife told me, "Well, yeah, but you're not very handy," which is true. <laughs> womp womp womp. Yeah, <laughs> ego <she> deflated. Really, <laughs> yeah, and you know, she. Truth be told, we live in Wyoming, and you know, I think I was gonna have to fill the whole garage with tools, and she didn't want to be like, you know, without there with the broom, knocking two feet of snow off the car every morning to go to work. <laughs> Getting so around she was your the furniture. One that said, yeah. So she she said, well, why don't you write a novel? You like to read, and I don't know. I'd never done really well in school with. English or anything. So it seemed like a stupid idea, but it stuck in my head. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that. I'll write a novel and, you know, my mom will read it. And, uh, Some of your friends, that'll be the end. You know, yeah. Yeah. That'll be it. It'll be, but it'll be a fun project. Learn to write a novel. So I did. I bought all these, like, how to write a novel for dummies and stuff like that <laughs> books and kind of went through them all and wrote a novel. And, uh, or did you know anybody thing. in the business? Before you started doing this, or was just completely cold turkey jumped into it, not knowing. You know, kind of. But strangely, my father, and I wasn't entirely aware of this necessarily at the time, was friends with a lot of authors. Um, He was really good friends with Tom Clancy, um, and in fact, he is the pattern for the FBI agent character Dan Murray uh, in the Tom Clancy novels. Um, that's cool. And yeah, I met Tom when, you know, when I was in college and Tom still had his insurance company. Um, cause he had come over to do research for his second novel. And the, my, my father was the guy he wanted to put in the not like he, he had the position mm-hmm. that was, uh, interested in writing about. Yeah. So, but this is before Tom was really famous. And then I don't know why, but my father, yeah, like my father has all these friends. I, I remember calling him once in when they were living in Virginia beach and he said, Frederick Forsyth, he's like, well, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm sitting here drinking by the pool with Frederick, Frederick Forsyth. And I'm like, well, I don't know Frederick Forsyth. He's like, Oh, me and Freddie been friends for years. He's down for the week. You know, he's staying for the week. I don't know. It's so weird. Just like he's nothing. Huh? Yeah. And, uh, but you know, that wasn't, I didn't really talk to any of them much about it. Um, I mean, I asked, you know, I had Tom helped me out. Tom Clancy had helped me out and everything, mm-hmm. but it was kind of a vacuum because, to be honest with you, I didn't think anything would ever come of it. I mean, my goal wasn't to be become an author, like to, to be a professional author, really. It just yeah, sort of yeah. was a project. 
And what was your first, what was your first novel that you wrote? It was called rising Phoenix. Okay. What was that Um, about? That was about, um, like a, a former DEA agent. This is so think back many years that this book came out. The war on drugs was really big. Mm-hmm. Terrorism wasn't much on the radar yet. Yeah. And this was about a this former late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. It would have been early nineties. Okay. Early nineties. Like maybe to mid nineties. And, uh, it was about a former DEA agent who decided he was going to like on a large scale poison the U S narcotics supply. And basically kill all the drug users in so, the United States. So kind of a vigilante? Yeah, a vigilante. And then the FBI agent who's trying to track him down is, you know, all these people are dropping dead of, uh, of this, you know, these tainted narcotics. Yeah. So was, was that guy kind of the, the protagonist of the book or was the... Yeah, well, the FBI guy was, that was chasing him was the protagonist of the book. But, okay. you know, it was a little bit ambiguous. I mean, the DEA guy that was doing it was uh, a really bad guy, obviously, and killed a lot of people. But I thought it was an interesting idea because, you know, in the end, would you save more lives than you took by doing that, getting people to right. stop drugs and stuff like that? So that was... I, I, you know, I got to build all, build all that into there, into the story, the politics of it and the, the kind of moral philosophy of it, which I was interested in. Now, did that turn into a series? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, I mean, the, the DEA guy, no, but and, okay. the, and the premise was, that was one book, but the FBI agent, uh, I think wrote four books about him. Okay. And what was his name? Mark Beeman. Mark Beeman. So, how do yeah, you guys no, come I, up with these like just like stoic studly names? Like <laughs> that was well before Matt the internet. Mitch rap, phone man. Books. Yeah, phone <laughs> books. So Vince used all people he knew. So like I've met rap before. That's a real you know? person? Yeah, they're all real people. I mean it the is, names though have been changed. No, no, there's a guy named Rap, but it, okay. his first name isn't Mitch. I got you. So some of them are just flat out like there's one woman who got I swear to you, I think got killed horribly or something. It was like one of his grade school teachers or something. <laughs> Somebody you didn't care her. for much. I met her too, yeah. Um, so uh, I didn't really realize that when I uh, when I took over. But like Irene Kennedy is the uh, is the head of the CIA, and that's one of I think his niece. Um, okay. So, um, so not necessarily. It, people that would fit the the profile, but just people in his life he took the names from. That... No, 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 no. I met, like, I met this one really nice, I think it's like a really good friend of his who was some horrible senator who Mitch Rapp ends up killing or something. She was very proud of that. that, that <laughs> <laughs> she's been killed horribly in this book. So these books are more therapy than, than anything, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, they may have been. Yeah, I think they are for most people. You know, you write, you write the guy you want to be and about the things you want to happen. Right. So the, the Vince Flynn books, how far into your career did you, did you take that over? Oh, I'd probably written, I don't know, maybe 14 books or something at that point. And I'd written three for Robert Ludlum. Um, and who's Robert Ludlum? Again, I'm, Robert, I'm new to Robert, this. Oh, sorry. Robert Ludlum was a really famous author. I don't know if you've ever seen the Jason Bourne movies. Oh, yeah. Like, That's Robert Ludlum? He wrote those, yeah. Okay. 
So you so you wrote some Bourne books. Huh? You wrote some of the yeah. the Jason Bourne books. Yeah. No, I didn't write the Jason Bourne books. I wrote a different series for him. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, a guy named Eric von Lisbotter took over the Jason Bourne books. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so I had done that. I had done a bunch of my own books. And then, uh, yeah, and then Vince Flynn died uh, at a very young age uh, of cancer. And he had written this Mitch Rapp character who's kind of one of the icons of uh, – Thrillerdom, Thriller, I guess. spy, espionage kind of stuff. Yeah, kind of like James Bond and Jason Bourne and Mitch Rapp and Jack Ryan from the Tom Clancy series. Um, you know, Jack Reacher, some of the big right. characters in the thriller world, and his was one of those. Um, so I ended up taking over that that series. Nice. When you took over the, the Vince Flynn novels, I mean, obviously you would have had to have done the research and going back and read those. How many was he into it at that point when you took over? Oh, the, see, I'm writing number 20 right now, and I've that, this will be number seven for me, so I'll be done like 13 of them, I guess. Okay. Are, you, like are you averaging like one a year, or how often are you yeah. cranking those out? Yeah, I do one a year. Okay. Right? So, yeah, I t- you know, I had been a fan anyway. Just, you know, I read them for fun. Um, but I had read them for fun over, you know, the course of whatever that was, 15 years. So I went back and reread them all in order and, you know, took tons of notes and everything to try to figure, well, the, the universe itself is really complicated. If you think about that was, I counted, it was like 6,500 words or, or I mean pages, 6,500 pages, pages total in the series. So that universe was huge. You know, all the people that you know, he knew his friends, his enemies, the people who had died, yeah. all the things that had formed his character. So you kind of had to know all that before you embarked on writing the book. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in order to carry on the, the storyline. Um, have there been any movies made from this series? Yeah, the first book in the series is called American Assassin. And that was made into a movie, I guess that would have been a couple of years ago now. You know what? I think I saw that. Yeah, you might have. It's, American uh, Assassin. Was that where they uh, the he's on I, vacation and they kill his girlfriend yeah, at yeah, a resort? And then yep. the, Dylan O'Brien paid Mitch re- Rapp. He gets recruited. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's Mitch Rapp. That's Mitch Rapp. The first novel of Mitch Rapp. So when Mitch was really young, obviously, like he would have been like 23 or something in that book. Yeah. Now he's in his mid-40s. Okay. Nice. Are there plans for other movies? Hopefully, yeah. Because that was a good movie. Shut down. Yeah, it was a cool movie, and the actors did a great job. You know, it had Michael Keaton, yeah. in there as his mentor, and uh, so uh, yeah. But we're hoping either that or a series. But right now, Hollywood's a little shut down because of COVID. Well, they're opening back. Yeah, you know, they are. Yeah, it's we're, we're slowly slow. coming. Of course, back. who knows? You know, I mean, COVID's spiking again. So so they say. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah. So they say, so, you know. So we'll see. When the I mean, real numbers like, come out, you know, who knows? <laughs> elections yeah. coming up. Let's see what happens after the election, right? Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll get a little under control. You know, I live in Spain as well, and they've had a lot of real problems with it. Have you there. been over there since this? No, I couldn't go back. Yeah, they so shut they it down. Closed. They, like, shut down um, when I was supposed to go back. So, uh We've been here in Wyoming. So uh, is that like a vacation 
home in Spain there? Uh, or do you spend a lot of time know. in like Spain? I, like I'm a legal resident of Spain, so I was, it's more of a more than a vacation home. I spend like a year there. The ideal would be a year here, a year there, but right. um, it's a little hard to get there now. <laughs> so we're trying to decide. We were supposed to go in June, but now what now part of Spain are you? Are you do you live in the south? And it's kind of in the mountains in the south. A town called Granada. Oh wow! How long have you been there? Um. Well, we just got back. We we were there for a little over a year, and then we went back again. And then um, now we can't now we can't get back. So yeah. uh, we'll see. Well, my immigration status though is getting a little shaky because I haven't been there uh, for a long time now. Mm. So we'll see. Uh, you would think happens. that they would take this under you know special circumstances and. But, I mean, That's, and they have to some extent. So <clears throat> my hope is that I will not lose my residency, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, I just have no idea. We were, like I said, I, my plan was to go back in February, but now they just they may decree that you can't travel internally. You know, like travel internal travel would be really hard until May. So right, uh, kind of hard to. Was get this around. a place you'd picked out in your? Uh, in your younger years, traveling around with your dad, with your family, or is this? Uh, I had been there. I've kind of been lucky in that I've been able to travel all over the world. And then, um, you know, as a writer, it's pretty flexible. Nobody really knows where you are. Plus, I like to go places that I write about. Sure. So ideally, I'd be living somewhere that I was writing about. Brings um, more so, realism into it, right? Yeah, you know, it's easy. You got to get the sights and the smells. So we started. Uh, my wife and I started going and living in places for longer periods of time. So we spent a lot of time in South Africa, living in Cape Town, and we've lived in uh, Istanbul and oh, wow. London. And uh, we really loved Spain. And so we thought, well, we're just going to, instead of staying for three or four months, which is what you could stay for three typically, yeah, you know, a tourist visa, and then you had to get out. Um we decided we'd just see if we could become residents of Spain and then kind of split our time between the two, the two. Uh, Very United nice. Spain. So now, we'll see. There, uh, we, weren't, uh, we, weren't, we weren't counting on the whole global pandemic thing. Well, I don't planned. think a lot of people were. And then yeah. here we are, you know, dealing, dealing with it. And that's what we got to do. You know, we just, we adapt and we overcome. And that seems to be what we're doing. Finding yeah, a way to, to overcome it. But are there scrum. great rock climbing there in Spain? Is that one of the things that... Attracted you to Spain? Yes. I mean, probably some of the best in the world. Um, however, I'm mostly a mountain biker and backcountry skier now because climbing is a young man's Because sport. age? Yeah. You know, it's just... <laughs> I feel you. You know, it's good. You know, mountain biking and backcountry skiing are great because you can do them pretty well into into your, like, twilight years, but... yeah. Rock, grabbing hold of things and pulling on them as hard as you can is not great. And I started to fall apart in my kind of early to mid thirties and decided I'd like to be able to, you know, lift my hands over my head when I'm old and uh, move <laughs> my fingers. Right. So kind of backed off that and don't do much of it anymore. So what about the, the backcountry skiing? And I, I, I assume the mountain biking is amazing there also. Yeah. I mean, Everywhere, you know, mountain biking and backcountry skiing, both really good in both places. So Granada, you know, obviously I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is one of the big ski resorts in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and Spain is, Granada is kind of unique in that it's, 
in the mountains in the Sierras, but um, so there's a ski hill maybe 15 miles from my house, but it's it's weird because the town is so much lower. The weather in the winter there is really nice. So you'll literally see people standing in the bus stop. You'll be walking by them in shorts and a t-shirt. They'll be standing there with their skis <laughs> in full ski garb waiting for the bus to take them up there. So it's yeah. kind of ideal. It's a great climate. You can do whatever you want. Like winter, spring summer. skiing uh, in, in Colorado yeah. or Wyoming, I guess. Yeah. Or you could drive down to the beach. It's about an hour. Go down to the beach. So it's kind of a nice spot. Get the Food's best good. of all worlds. Yeah. That's kind of what we discovered. Old World Heritage Site. I lived in a 500-year-old Arab house. Ooh. It was built when the Arabs controlled that part of the country. So, uh, that was cool. beautiful, huh? Yeah, it was great. It's uh, really interesting because a lot of the Arabic carving of the writing was still in the archways and stuff and uh, super cool place to live. Now, have you learned, um, obviously I would assume you've learned Spanish, you know Spanish? Uh, my Spanish is pretty good, but uh, it's, uh, it's a tough language to learn, I find, particularly when you're old yeah. and, and adult. So, well, in different yeah, areas not, too, you know, you get, they've got different, I guess, dialects. Yeah. And Granada is super hard. It's, it's like a thick, you know, I guess it'd be the equivalent of trying to learn a thick Southern accent. <laughs> kind of like me. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't consider like my father-in-law. I have a hard time understanding. He's from Southern Virginia. Okay. And I, that's the way, um, it is in Granada. So you have like have this really thick southern accent and they have a really strong lisp yeah so um it's uh taken me a while it's probably to a, a little older dialect too than than yeah some of and the other spanish, spanish ones and it, there's actually dialect they're called andalus which is not really spanish and a lot of the mostly the older people speak that there so um i mean it's yeah it's it's a little challenging yeah. but um, you know, if I get around a bunch of really old people out in one of the Pueblos in a small town, yeah. I would say that I understand about 30% of what they're saying, <laughs> but I don't know that anybody from the North of Spain would do much better. So I don't feel too bad about it. There you go. Well, I mean, that's the people you need to be hanging out with there. I mean, to really get the culture, the, yeah, the older super, folks. Super, yeah. Food's great. It's, it's, uh, is that more of the seafoodish kind of food there? Yeah. No. Not where I am because I'm up in the mountains. If you live down on the coast, for sure. They like their ham. Ah, okay. It's, they dig on the pigs there, the swine. And it's uh it's hilarious. Yeah, you like you'll go to a cathedral and there'll be a statue of a pig out front. Really? Like, <laughs> That's yeah. funny. So like they they're into their pig. Are they into bacon? Uh they don't really have bacon. Not, Man, not you've like, gotta introduce them to bacon. I know, seriously. You know, well, honestly, one of the hardest times I think I've ever spent with that is um, when we were living in Istanbul, you know, Muslim country, so they oh, didn't have yeah. pork. They don't dig and on I, swine. I, yeah. never, I didn't even think about that when we moved there. And after about, I don't know, it was like three weeks or something, I'm like, there's something missing in my life. What is it? <laughs> bacon. <laughs> and I realized, God, it's bacon. And uh, yeah, so I find, we found it, it was funny, we found a store like a Christian store that had bacon in it, but it was, I swear to God, it was like 50 euros a pound. Oh my gosh. So I'm like, I'm just going to sit here and smell it. It's worth every penny though. <laughs> Can I have one piece? Yeah. I've paid more for less. Oh. 
<laughs> so in your in your novels that uh, that you've got going on, the the one that's out new is Total Power, and that's the the Mitch Rap series. Let's talk about that book um, that you've got out. So how how does this continue uh, Mitch's saga? Yeah, so Mitch's saga, like I said, goes from when he was in college to now he's like 44 and is the CIA's top operative. Um, and they all, there's a, there is a gap between kind of when he's really young and when he's in his eh, probably early 30s. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's been pretty consistent. You know, every book picks up where the last book left off. Now, is and Mitch, I'm stuck with that. Is Mitch a, a rogue type operator? Is he a by the book kind of character? Uh, you know, with the CIA, it's hard to tell. Are you rogue <laughs> or are you just doing what they quietly want you to do, but, you know, don't say that out loud yeah. and wouldn't necessarily stand behind you if anybody found out? So he and the director have been really, really close since he was basically in college, since she recruited him. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, he is doing what he's doing with her knowledge. Would I say that everybody has knowledge of that or that it's all completely legal? No, definitely not. So a little edgy, a little edgy. Yeah, a little edgy. He operates within the U.S. borders, which is a no-no for the CIA and things like that. Supposed to be, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Supposed um, to be. Which is probably a good thing in real life, but in in this book we need him. So um, the – and this book is the premise is that uh, basically an American psychotic backed up by some terrorists are able to – take down the U.S. power grid in a way that could keep it down for a really long time, uh, which would be incredibly devastating to the United States. I mean, the government uh, has estimated in real life that 90% of us would die if uh, the grid went down and it stayed down for a year. So this is about sort of the battle to find out who did it, how they did it, and uh, get the power back on. And to do the research on this, where where did you draw your information from? A lot of government documents. I'd actually written a book early in my career that was sort of about an, a group of environmental terrorists who were trying to destroy the oil supply. Yeah. But but my hero sort of saves the day, and I in the back of my mind I always thought what maybe that was the wrong book to write. Maybe the interesting book would have been. A more interesting book would have been if he didn't save the day and you'd have to start the book with that. And then you have this operating environment that's completely unique. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything's in the dark. There are no communications. You can't pump gas. You know, Americans are desperate. Communications hungry. down. Yeah. Communications are down. You know, eventually. No the water Internet. What goes. are we going to do? Oh, my God. Yeah, no more Amazon. <laughs> um, and it's been. Like even more, I think it's been more impactful even with COVID because I went into a lot of detail explaining kind of what would happen and sort of the steps of what would happen because I don't feel think people really understand how reliant they are on power and on, you know, just the systems that keep America running, the government, the, you know, private industry, transportation. And then now, you know, COVID broke before this book came out. And I think people have a much deeper understanding of, 
you know, what if I went to the grocery store and there was nothing in it, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, which we've experienced recently. Yeah. Yeah, We've experienced that recently. And, uh, oddly my last book was about, uh, uh, a coronavirus. So the, the, the arc between the books I think has been driven home by this. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm 50. So, this has happened a couple of times in through my lifetime. You know, the, the COVID isn't the first time to where, you know, we've had a, a lack of being able to you know, gas or food or, you know, whatever, you know, there's been times in our history where we've gone through this before. Um, but now it's you know, it's got a new face with the, the virus, the coronavirus. Um, but I think it's good that our, our generation Z or the millennials have experienced it now too. You know, thank God it wasn't as bad as they originally, you know, had projected it to be. Uh, but yeah. I think it was a great wake-up call for a lot of these younger generations, the importance in, uh, you know, I, and I don't like, you know, I don't really like to use the word prepping, but but that's it. I mean, being prepared, that's what prepping is for just such an emergency. And you hear it all the time, you know, especially right now, it's hurricane season, uh, you know, down in our coastal states, you know, they get hit by these hurricanes year after year and they're always losing power and, you know, access to food and water and, um, you know, whatnot. And it always seems like a surprise or a shock to people, but it, it happens, <laughs> it happens every year. <laughs> yeah. And this stuff, uh, you know, I mean, particularly with pandemic, I think is sort of by far the greatest threat to humanity. Um, and how you would prepare for it, how you would survive, I think it would be difficult. I mean, a lot of it, I think, would to some extent be luck as to where you lived. Mm-hmm. If, you know, there was a big pandemic and or power went out. Because if there was a really bad pandemic, if you think about it, the power would go out too. You know, it's not because the people that keep it on would get sick sure. or they'd stop showing up to work. So, um I'm lucky. I live in Wyoming. You know, there are very few people here and I live a hundred feet from a river you can drink out of and elk wander through my backyard. Got some natural resources right there. Yeah. That to scavenge and not for. a lot of, yeah, not a lot of competition. Yeah. You well, know, until a pandemic happens and then you're going to have a lot of competition. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know that too many people would wander up to Wyoming. I, I mean, they're only 500. They might. I don't know. It's cold, rugged. I mean, they're going to go where the, they're going to go where the resources are. And Most people can't walk a mile in the United States. That's true. <laughs> that's true. And that's all uphill. It is, and it's cold at times. <laughs> it's cold. You know, I mean, it's three below zero this morning. Right. Now, are you a hunter? No, no. I hate getting up early. <laughs> well, you don't necessarily have to get up early, but... <laughs> no. You know, I've been a few times, but mm-hmm. uh Fishing? Honestly, do you think, think you do any of that up there? I used to fish, but I was terrible at it. Yeah. So... Uh, and was it yeah, that you were terrible at it, or you just didn't have the patience for it? I, you know, I kept hooking myself. So <laughs> my wife is a pretty good fisherman. Yeah. Um, fisher woman, fisher person. Fisher person. Um, but, uh, no, no, you know, I've, I kind of go through my sports as my body wears out. Yeah. So I went to, I quit rock climbing. I started racing mountain bikes and then got into backcountry skiing. And, you know, I was also a big resort skier, but I kind of wore out. I didn't, all my friends are going through their knee replacements and I didn't want to go through that. So I feel like 
fly fishing. I'm going to be big into hunting and fly fishing one day. But So that's um, to come. Yeah, you're yeah. saving that. Saving that for your I'm golden years. For sure. I feel like <laughs> fly fishing will be perfect. You know, the, the water will support most of my body weight. And I could just Well, it sounds like out. with your network of friends, uh, you're not going to have any trouble, uh, you know, getting good tips and tricks. So. No, and you know what I've discovered is the easiest way to, to hunt is wait till one of your friends gets a bison <laughs> or an elk, and there's no, they're so huge, they can't eat it. And then you say, hey, could I, I've got this empty box, could I go right. into your freezer and fill it? And they're usually happy to, happy to let you, and then I'm, so my hunting is I'm 100% successful. <laughs> Keith likes everything about the great outdoors. He's a lot like us. Whether we're bow hunting in the backcountry or plinking in the backyard, we want to enjoy each experience to the fullest. Keltec's 22 caliber P17 is Heath's go-to pistol for a good time, on the range, on the trail, and anywhere in between. Weighing in at only 14 ounces with a full magazine, its compact size makes it easy to conceal or tuck away in a small pack, pocket, or space. It comes out of the box ready with a fiber optic front sight, a threaded barrel, a Picatinny rail, and a price point for any budget. With three 16-round magazines, it's ready for hours of pure, unadulterated enjoyment. It's easy, it's affordable, it's accurate, and it's a damn sweet marvel of plinking innovation. The Keltec P17. It's more bang for less buck. So in the in the total power, so we're talking about a they're hitting our power grids, and it's it's um, domestic terrorism that you're talking about. So you're dealing with yeah. domestic terrorists here. Yeah, the fundamentally yes, domestic terrorism. I mean, he he gets help from a foreign terrorist group because mm -hmm. he needs kind of boots on the ground, which is something he can't do. He's more tuned to the cyber attack yeah. part of it, not the physical. He needs people to do the physical attacks. So um, it's a combination. But um, I'm kind of interested in that. I mean, we're seeing that. I think, you know, we're seeing the domestic terrorism side increase, I think, almost daily, it seems like, in the United States. I mean, yeah. the head of Homeland Security was just talking about you know, kind of some of the, the right wing and white supremacist group, we just saw them, you know, try to, you know, planning to kidnap a, a governor and stuff. So mm -hmm. obviously we saw Timothy McVeigh historically. So I, well, I think we've got the, the Antifa people now and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, the riots and the things that they're uh, instigating too. Uh, I consider that terrorism. Yeah, and it'll terrorism. be interesting to see if that turns into a terrorist movement. Um, uh, I think it's already there. <laughs> It's well, when I, when I depends on how you define terrorism, I don't consider like demonstrations and riots. Like I'm not putting that in exactly. So the you same don't, category. you don't consider a riot domestic terrorism where they're burning buildings down and, and looting and from killing from my, police officers. When I'm, when I, from what, what I'm talking about is from a writing standpoint, okay. it's not really something that someone would investigate and like prevent at the nick of time. You know, like one guy would, you know, go in and, and prevent at the nick of time. But they, I consider it a, a different category of sort of civil unrest and, mm -hmm. and something that you would use, you know, a larger enforcement system against police, you know, National Guard, stuff like that. Gotcha. So from a novel writing standpoint, not really a traditional terrorist plot. So not really something a reader would be interested in. 
kind of thing. Well, you know, I'm thinking more like would Antifa ever revolve into an organization that would try to, you know, assassinate the president or blow up a building or something like that, which would be something that would be more novel worthy, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so something that I've noticed in... I think you you wrote a haven't you written a book in the past that had to deal with you know some sort of a a virus or a contagion or something like that? Yeah, well, I mean, a few times. Yeah, so yeah. The, my book was about a coronavirus. Okay. So, uh, you know, a, a terrorist group, um, an Islamic terrorist group, trying to sort of smuggle in sick people with the idea of spreading it mm-hmm. um, through these people that were infected. Um, and then I've, I've done that, you know, I had a a book I wrote for the Ludlums that was about a parasitic infection that to, in a way it was a zombie book cause I'm a huge fan of the zombie genre. Oh, good. So yeah, me too. <laughs> it was, uh, it was these parasites that could, would affect, you know, people's brains and turn them very violent, kind of like rabies, the way people think of rabies. Yeah. And, uh, so that was really fun to write cause I've always wanted to write sort of a zombie book. Nice. How long ago was that? Oh God, that would have been like probably close to ten years ago. Okay. So, what uh, about the the coronavirus one? How long ago was that one? That was my last book. So, that just came out in paperback. That's called Lethal Agent. So that would have and been well a, before the coronavirus pandemic that we've got now. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, it was kind of funny when the when the paperback came out. I thought, God, is anybody going to want to read this, or does everybody have? coronavirus fatigue um so uh i think it's just the opposite of that you know people are wanting to learn more about that um yeah it's funny it's absolutely has been the opposite of it people love that book and have really written it i'm it's funny for me i watch um the spanish news every night mm -hmm. in spanish to figure out what's going you know to keep up with what's going on in spain and what's going you know, on at your house yeah <laughs> who's yeah, watching my house <laughs> you know for spanish but i mean i can't even watch it anymore because it's like all coronavirus all the time and i've just given up like i can't stand it yeah so i'm the same way just want something just like should like something about soccer or something you know anything well what was your inspiration <laughs> for for writing about uh and was it specifically the coronavirus that you were writing about or was it just yeah, it was a coronavirus. So, okay. you know, you have SARS was the famous was one. Was a corona, yeah. Yeah, that was, there was also MERS, which people mm-hmm. know, which was Middle Eastern. It's much more deadly, but did not take off quite as much, quite as quickly. And so that was the pattern. A lot more deadly, too. Mine was called, yeah, YARS. So it was Yemeni, um, acute, like, respiratory syndrome. And uh, I was interested in doing it one of the reasons was because Mitch Rapp, I like throwing new things at him. Um, and, uh, so this was a Mitch Rapp. This is the Mitch Rapp series. Okay. And he had never had to deal with a bio threat, not really up his alley. He's not a sciencey kind of guy and tends to, you know, kinds to kind of a a problem you can't solve with a gun necessarily. So, um, it's not dealing with a person at this at this point. Yeah, I mean, obviously there was a terrorist group, but sure. you know, in the end, you know, it was the it was the bugs that were going to get him, not the terrorists, so yeah. much, and and so an uncomfortable position for him to be in. So where did you go to to do your research for that? Um, I mean, I, obviously you went back and studied those the previous coronaviruses that had existed. Um, did you go to a certain 
uh, organization to get your information? Uh, it's all over. World Health Organization, CDC. I knew a guy uh, that was an infectious disease specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I had a few different places. I Unfortunately, I was not able to go to Yemen because it's pretty much a war zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a little dangerous. I had to extra- extrapolate that from other places I'd traveled through in the Middle East. But um, yeah, so basically various sources uh, for that one. So, I mean, it's just because there, I've, I've noticed several books, movies, uh, and whatnot that were based on that theme that just, you know, maybe a year, two years prior to us getting this, you know, it just seems coincidental, you know? It's like, you guys knew about this. You knew there was a potential for this. You know, even though you're writing fiction, you're basing it on reality. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is... I don't think there's any question that this is the number one by like, it's probably number one through 10 threats to humanity. I mean, you think just sure. the United States, we've lost 200,000 people to coronavirus. Compare that to wars, um, compare that to terrorist attacks. I mean, it's just an order of magnitude larger, not, not all our wars, obviously, but, but most yeah. of them. So, um, and the effect it could have on the entire world the effect it could have on, uh, but minuscule compared to other diseases that we face, you know, that, that we've had like cancer, you know, right. Yeah, exactly. But it could, I mean, if it broke out, it could, um, I mean, it could be just incredibly like the black plague back in the, um, like the 1400, well, there've been many plagues, the, yeah. uh, but the big one was the black death yeah. and yeah, I mean, you're talking about like where I lived in Spain, there were places that, um, took 80% casualties during that. Um, you had, I mean, it transformed society. You had like literally there, I did a lot of research on this and you know, you literally would have, um, people would be part, they partied a lot. Mm-hmm. Because they figured they were going to die, and you would literally, if you didn't need more chairs for your party, you just walk into a house and get them, because your assumption was, They're well, dead. people were all dead in there. <laughs> um, and now, this is really interesting. There were these little windows in the buildings where they would. So if you went and bought something, you'd get it through the little window. There were plague windows because they didn't want you in their building. Right. And they've reopened those. Like I never really noticed them in the towns because they were kind of closed up. Kind of like a drive-through. Yeah, they're like a drive-through. Yeah, but fourteen hundred. Yeah. So they've reopened them. So if like you want your to go to your pharmacy and it's in an old building, they'll hand it through the plague window. Um, History repeats itself. History repeats itself, but not as bad. You know, nowhere near as bad. Right. But if you think about what would happen if you know we took those kinds of casualties. I mean, back then, you know, a lot of people were subsistence, you know, subsistence farmers. They could handle life on their own. There wasn't a lot of support, yeah. um, external support. In fact, it helped them because, you know, if you had, you know, a family of 20 farming one acre, you know, now there were two of you and you had plenty of food. Right. That would not be the case now. You would have a massive collapse in society, in the systems that keep everybody alive. So even if you didn't die of it, you would probably die of something else. I mean, 
when the power goes out, the water pumps go out. So can you live without water being pumped to your house, without sanitation? You know, most people can't. They don't mm -hmm. live close to the water source. So it's something we need to really prepare for and be, you know, be able to handle. Absolutely. And uh, we could be doing a lot better. I mean, uh, hopefully we're going to start learning some lessons and, you know, the so hindsight. We've been, we've been doing this series here on the show, and it's, it's more about um, self-ownership, you know, self-reliance uh, kind of topics. And, uh -huh. and it deals with, you know, being able to provide for yourself and your family during these times, you know, and it gets back to the prepping, you know, storing the, the water, the food, the medicines, you know, type things. Do your characters, do you get into like those type things in any of your books uh, with your characters? Yeah. So in this one, <clears throat> for instance, Mitch Rapp is really, really well prepared because he's been preparing his whole life to be attacked. So he has this house that he's built that's kind of this modern house on top of this hill and he's surrounded by people he knows. Um, but it's a little bit of a bunker, you know, he has solar panels, wind, he has well, a secured well, a couple of years of food weapons, you know, all this stuff, he can black it out. Um, but he also spent millions of dollars on that and had a reason to do it. Uh, so not really, he lives out in the country away from people. Uh, except for the people around him who are all his friends. Right. So it's not really practical for people. There's another character in this book that's a Russian agent who sees it coming but doesn't have those kinds of resources. And so she sort of packed her apartment in D.C. with all this stuff. But, you know, it depends on how long it lasts. Sure. And you have a real problem if you're in a city and the water goes out. You know, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, and you can't walk down to the Potomac and drink out of it because that then you die even quicker. Yeah. So um, the ability of 350 million people to live in the United States is predicated on sort of a, this a lot of cooperation and a very complex machine. So yeah, if um, one of those cogs of that machine gets thrown out, then we're in chaos. Yeah, you really are. I mean, if you think about, I mean, anybody out there that, you know, just think about, okay, turn off the taps in your house and don't go to the grocery store and now live for a year. Um, it's not, not going to be that easy. No. <laughs> so not, uh, not without skills, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> without, you gotta, like, you gotta learn those skills amount of skills and they're and learned preparation. Yeah. They're yeah. learned. You just don't pick those up. You're, you're, um, however old the human species is, doesn't just kick in and you know, your hunter gatherer instincts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they'll Plus, kick in, but you don't know what to do. Yeah. It's yeah. hard because hunter gatherers didn't live in heavily populated, you know, areas. There's not, not much to hunt and gather if, you know, you've got, you're living in New York city, for instance. Right. So, um, and you know, even like water, I mean, I was thinking about this, like how would I survive and what would be my chances of surviving if this happened like a water source. I mean, even if you've got a clean water source a mile from you, mm -hmm. well, you've got to go down and get enough water to survive a mile from you. You don't have a car. You got to walk down there and get it. You know, so Expose a lot yourself. of people don't yeah. live near that. Um, so, you know, they, these are um, things to think about and things that America, I think, needs to be prepared for. I mean, for instance, our military 
is not on its own grid. Um, so their power goes out with ours. Nobody's coming to save you. You know, it's not like a hurricane where FEMA and the military and everybody shows up mm-hmm. to help out, you know? Um, so it's, a. I think it's something that the United States needs to think about. We need to think about what we can do, what we would do in a pandemic that was more serious, um, how we would prevent the spread, you know, how we would uh, survive. So uh, keep the machines running. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure. The answer is complicated and expensive. Well, it's, it's individual responsibility. Yeah, it's each individual well, I mean, taking responsibility that, for themselves. If you say or, that, everybody's going to die. I mean, like you're 90% of people are going to die. You'll have 10% left. And 10% would probably be just people who lived in rural areas. You know, yeah. I don't know that I'm more fit than anybody else. I just happen to live in Wyoming. You know, yeah. So, well, geography, yeah. Geography will play a yeah. huge part in that. Yeah. Know, where you're so, ge- geographically located. And honestly, probably a lot of rural areas in Africa and stuff like that, those people would survive because... Because they you know, have power, been. Because <laughs> they already know, have been, right? <laughs> dimensional to them, so... Yeah. Well, very good. So but this sounds like a good book. I'll die. If it wasn't all person, you know, it wasn't all, we're going to get my gun, kill my neighbor and eat him. Um, I think there are ways... I think America's become a little defeatist um, with this whole... In fact, I think it was the White House chief of staff basically said you know, we're not going to get control of the coronavirus. And I feel like America has historically been a country that has said, hell yeah, we're going to get control of this. We can absolutely do it. We can do it better than everybody else. Yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of people agreed with what he had to say though, either. So, well, no, I I hope, I hope that that's a minority opinion. Um, Yeah. Because Uh, he, um, he obviously doesn't, you know, reflect the American spirit. Well, it's like you said, you know, Americans have the, never die attitude and we will we but, will prevail and you know the whole world will prevail you know we'll we'll get a grasp you know get a handle on this and you know it's it's like we've already like we talked about earlier we've already started to adapt to it you know find ways yeah, to adapt adapt dying of it i think which is kind of a sad situation hopefully yeah. <laughs> i my, my my i want us to beat it i guess is what i'm what i'm after i want you know, I think about what we did to to get going for World War II. Like, I mean, it's hard to even imagine that now. Mm-hmm. What what I mean, we turned over everything. I mean, car companies didn't make cars anymore. They just stopped, you know, and started making weapons. I mean making we, tanks you know, and airplanes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody made gardens. I mean, they were collecting scrap, you know, people rationed, uh, you know, half of you know, the huge number of the men, you know trained to become soldiers who weren't soldiers before. I mean, it, like, it's just incredible what we were able to accomplish. And I feel like, you know, the guys, the old guys from World War II are looking at this and thinking, really, this is the best you can do? <laughs> like, we would have had this knocked out, you know, <laughs> six months ago. Come on. Yeah. Come on, kids. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting, though, Um have you ever thought about going and, and doing a, a period piece novel? I'd love to. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. So, and I've talked about it uh, going back and writing about Mitch when he was young. There's also a guy, this guy, Stan Hurley, who was his mentor, who's, who died uh, in a few books back. I killed him off because he was in his 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
but I, it would be really fun to go back when he was maybe just getting into the agency and, you know, talking about the cold war. Yeah. Um, you know, and him, you know, doing the, you know, the, the drops on the bridge in Siberia, you know, handing a guy a suitcase right. of cash, which is so much <laughs> more romantic than, Oh, I've, you got your phone. You're like, I've wired you the money. Could you send me the file? Do you feel yeah. like, do you feel like that, um, that period piece, that genre is, has been done overdone or do you think there's still, you know, some things that uh, have been left untapped? In no, I think, it, I think it was an exciting oh, time. I mean, you know, and I, 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 you know, the, the Soviet Union was such an, uh, a, like an incredible, uh, opponent and I don't know, there, there's just so many, even when I started, I think about my, you know, my early books where the guy was like desperate to find a pay phone, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> or to find out a piece of information. They're like, Oh my God, how am I going to figure out like, I don't know what street this person lives on and they're ripping mape no, like GPS to find a map, you know? And now everything is so much at your fingers tips. It's, uh, I don't know. I think about the coins, you know, they had hollowed out coins with microfilm in it and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. I, I just love that crap, you know? Yeah. I think you should <laughs> do that, man. Definitely. That would be, uh, I mean, I would be interested in that. I'm sure there are other people that would, that would too. Plus it's going to keep that, you know, that kind of history alive. You know, it's, yeah. it's not going to get forgotten about. Yeah. And I think about, you know, the space program, the early space program. And even now you're seeing, I feel like maybe this is my imagination, but I feel like there are a lot of movies about the world wars mm -hmm. because I mean, so much happened, you know, you, you could have a battle in world war two that you've never heard of. You know, I was watching a show about one that happened in Italy Hundred, you know, it's like we took two hundred thousand casualties. Wow! In a, in a battle, um, one, and you think that's just like the scale of that is so incredible. I mean, you think about writing about stuff like that. Yeah, you could write an entire series of novels on that battle. Yeah, you know that one battle. That would be interesting. Is it, is it a particular battle that you're that you have in that mind? That was, but I can't remember what it which what it was called but it was like in the italian mountains and the the germans had set up like significant fortifications yeah we had to break through and i would swear it was something like two hundred thousand casualties i'm sure one of your listeners will know exactly which one it was now that'll be you know you got to do the research so you got to go to italy so you gotta have to live in italy for a while yeah that's yeah. not too bad so <laughs> and a lot of that stuff's still there which is really cool you can go and you find those you go out into the back country you'll be riding your bike in the back country and there'll be some German bunkers or something, which is there pretty a, fun. I, a I found a, a Napoleonic aqueduct once on a, really? on a trip. Yeah, which was kind of cool. <laughs> so it was like an undiscovered one before? That no, no. I mean, people knew. I'm sure people knew it was there, but it, you know, it wasn't. They like, just they paid it no, no attention. It was just there. I had to look it up later because I'm like, why is there a piece of an aqueduct here? And I went back and looked it up on the internet. There was some show, and I, I don't know if it was uh, – what network it was on, but it was this group of guys and they would travel and it was over in Europe and they would go to these where battles had occurred, you know, so they would do the research on the battles, find the areas and then try to go find where, you know, these battles occurred and they would go excavate them and find the artifacts and, you know, things. And they were digging up trenches and, um, um, bunkers. And I mean, it was very interesting. 
Uh, oh, it is. It's incredible. I, I mean, can't remember the name of that show, but it was. It still should be going on. It was really good, but uh, yeah, yeah I would be interested that in was, that. Was pretty amazing, and some of the artifacts that still exist are incredible. Now, do you have? Because it's not that long ago, you know. What if you think about it? It's like what seventy-five years ago or something. Yeah. Now yeah. I just uh, was it year before last, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Band of Brothers um, uh-huh. series that was on HBO. Uh, this was the last surviving member of Easy Company. His name was Al Mamprey. And um, I got to, to meet him, and he was on the show at the SHOT Show two years ago there in Las Vegas. And uh, it was just, it just, I was in awe just sitting there. And, I mean, his mind was just as crisp and clear, recalling, you know, those days back in World War II and, you know, he couldn't remember what he had for breakfast, you know, the, yeah, <laughs> but he could recall those memories just, you know, like they were yesterday, just as clear and concise as could be. Um, but that was a great interview. And he, he recently passed away and, you know, we're, we don't have very many of the, the world war two generation left. No, we had a guy here who was like the most interesting. It's like that, that beer commercial, the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> yeah. And this guy was the most interesting man in the world. And, he could tell you he had landed in Japan and at the end of the war and he was one of those guys where they had told the Japanese, I guess had told, you know, all the women and stuff that you got to fight because they're going to, you know, rape you and kill you and everything. And he was the guy, he's like, they were running off cliffs. Oh my gosh. We, we were chasing him going, don't stop. You know, <laughs> we're not going to But he, he's like, we found out later they told him, well, we were just going to rape them and kill them anyway, so they might as well just kill themselves. So we were running around trying to keep these people from committing, committing suicide. suicide. Oh, my gosh. And he was 18 or something at the time. Can you imagine 18 years old? Like, we're all high school students Yeah. now, you know, like running around high school playing football and stuff, and he was chasing people around trying to Japan. keep them from jumping <laughs> off cliffs. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So this uh, this series of books is definitely something that you've you've got me interested in it now. So I'm going to start listening to these. Are they av- available audio? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'll, I'll have to start, and it'll probably take me what eight, two years to <laughs> to go through. Yeah, them it's all. a it's a significant body of work. Yeah, I got to think we're over ten. 000, yeah, probably over ten thousand words now. So this would be like a good uh, Netflix pay, pay, series pay. that they should put on Netflix and do a. You know, they could do a series on the, It'd be super the Mitch fun. Rapp stuff. Yeah, it'd be really fun. I'm, we're hoping something like that'll happen. Yeah, that would be that'd be really good. I'd watch it definitely. So, what are you? What's your next book that you're doing? Uh, another Mitch Rapp book. Um, I'm kind of interested in you know they they're kind of you could go two ways now. I mean, politics in the United States has gotten so crazy uh, and unpredictable that you know you could go two ways with it you could either pull back and say you know i could have somebody come out of mitch rapp's past and they could duke it out and just ignore the political environment or you could kind of charge headlong into it yeah and at first i was going to do the first one and then i decided no it'd be more interested to do the latter so i'm going to kind of charge headlong into sort of the divisions in america and how that affects the world and kind of where all that's going yeah. um, and uh, kind of see where that goes. Um, 
it's it changes every day so it's it's challenging uh to keep on top of what's happening now with this with this franchise of uh mitch rap uh is there a group of people that you consult with or is are you do you have autonomy and you know you just kind of do what you want to do as far as the story goes as the Mm. stories go i pretty much have autonomy um I mean, obviously, you know, to the degree that I don't do something crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, I mean, if like I killed... Kill Mitch. <laughs> yeah, like kill Mitch Rapp. Yeah, I think that I would get some pushback there. But um, <laughs> no, I I mean, I, I, I feel pretty, you know, I'm pretty fond, obviously, of this series. I was as a fan and now I am as a writer. So I don't think anybody in the family or the publisher worries that I'm going to, you know, do anything crazy. I put a lot of thought into you know, where the series is heading and where the character is going to head. Now, do you, do you writers get together? Do you, you know, do you and let's say Jack Carr and Brad Thor, and do you guys get together and say, you know, I'm working on this and this is the story outline I'm working on. So you guys don't kind of overlap and, and run into that, you know, oh, you're just copying him kind of thing. <laughs> um, no, no, I don't. No. Um, no, it's a, in fact, I don't know that it ever comes up. I've, I've talked to Brad and Jack pretty recently, and I don't think, I don't think it ever came up what we were working on. It's okay. mostly just BSing sessions. So is it more like you just you keep it under your cuff too? You don't want them to know what you're working on, kind of thing? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I just told you, right? So, um, oh yeah, not yeah, not not really. I, I mean, everybody has their own take on things. So, you know, we don't really copy each other, but you know, you might have similar ideas i mean yeah. because you well, like I mean, the virus thing i know like that that's overlapped yeah. in you know several several novels and you know to me that and just it just seems like a you know too much of a coincidence that you know about this time all these people wrote about you know this you know this pandemic happened. of a virus you know, that's that's what it is i mean we all read the same news we all live in the same world so we that's true. That's... are going to perceive the same threats we talk we all talk to the intelligence community and we ask them, you know, what are you worried about? Yeah. And so their answers, I mean, there's going to be some overlap. It's kind of foreshadowing all- also. You, you yeah. see where I'm going with this? I mean, it's just, there's kind of like yeah. there's, there's this foreshadowing where you guys have written about this, you know, two, three years ago, and now it's coming to uh, truth. So right. with this, this grid thing, you know, is that something that, you know, is high on... Um, you know, the watch list kind of, you know, for our next terrorist act. Yeah. I mean, I think the government is making some moves now to protect the grid because you go, you tend to fight the last war. You know, we have this, we spend enormous amounts of money on a military, but you know, the head of the NSA has already said publicly that he thinks there are probably a couple of countries that could shut off our grid. Already, they have the power to do that. Mm-hmm. We find Russian malware in our grid all the time. There are literally hundreds of thousands of attempts to gain access to our grid every day. Um, so, and you know, according to the government, you'd only have to take out like nine of our major substations to put the entire country in the dark, which would not be difficult. So, because they're unprotected, they're largely, I mean, chain link fence, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, this is something, you know, I know I've, I've made some enemies saying this, but I would give up an aircraft carrier to put that money into protecting our grid because, um, 
you know, the chances of getting into a major naval battle with, you know, another country, particularly since most of them don't even have aircraft carriers, is relatively low, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we already have incredible superiority. But, you know, the idea that Russia has the, t- the, the power to click on a laptop and put the entire country into the gar- dark, or the idea that they could smuggle in, you know, 25 spec ops guys and blow you know, uh, blow up our stuff physically. I mean, I'll take a little, you know, a handheld, you know, rocket launcher of some sort. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, or heck, if you don't want to get that fancy, a bolt cutters and some dynamite. Um, so I think those are things that, um, but it's not, but it hasn't happened. So, you know, people don't, they, they look, I think it's na- human nature to look to the past and not to the future. Yeah. Very good. So, um, where can people go? Obviously, Amazon Prime is a great source for people to, you know, to get your books. Uh, where else yep. can they find those? Do you have a website? Yeah, check it. It's just kylemills.com. Um, you know, you can also go to the Vince Flynn website. Um, I'm Kyle Mills author on kind of all the social media, you know, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook Instagram. And, uh, you know, any bookstore you know, that's open, you could go into and, and find some installments in the Mitrap series, I think. I can imagine that you're not doing any signings right now, uh, in, no, per- in person at least. Not in person. Uh, we didn't do that this year. Nobody could. Are you holding any virtual uh, book yeah, readings or anything like is, that? Yeah, my tour is over for now. Uh, I did a bunch of stuff virtually with a lot of different bookstores. But if you check out my website, it'll. I'm doing a few things here and there still. Um, uh, so I'm doing a thing on election night, actually, um, Uh for people that don't want to pay attention to the election. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so you can check that out. I've got to schedule that on my website. Okay. That, that'll be different. Yeah. Give you something to do while you're sitting around biting your nails. Exactly. Wondering what your fate, what fate (laughs) lies in store. Um, very good. And it's K-Y-L-E. Kyle Mills, M-I-L-L-S, Leadheads. Uh, go check yep. him out. You're not going to be disappointed. Uh, I'm going to uh, go check out your audio selection because I like listening uh, to him. I find I've got, I can get more done listening than sitting down and reading because I, I can't sit down for very long. I'm not, uh, I'm impatient, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I got to be doing something. Feel that way. So yeah. if I'm doing the yard work or big. if I'm at the gym, uh, I'm always, you know, I'm listening to to something other than music. So yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll we'll check that out. This episode of Talking Lead is brought to you in part by Occam Defense. The guys at Occam love the AK, but didn't love burning their hands, getting cut by their pre-sharpened gun, or the lack of options for accessories. After spending a few years in the lab, they've recently released the ODS 1775 which brings the best of the AR family to the Kalashnikov's reliability. It's still an AK under the hood. AK mags, forged Polish AK parts, but with American aerospace manufacturing practices and ingenuity. Check them out at OccamDefense.com or on Instagram at OccamDefenseSolutions. And sometimes a girl. Questions! So you re- are you ready for the new guy, new guy, new guy questions? Sure. All right. 
So um, I have this line of questioning that I ask our new guests. Since it's your first time on the show, um, I'm going to hit you with these. So what is your earliest recollection, and you know, it could be shooting or just exposure to, to a gun, to a firearm? Um, the, probably my earliest memory, and I have a great picture of it, is going into the FBI's museum. My dad took me there, oh. and they set me up with a Tommy gun. But <laughs> nice. I, I still remember I, I couldn't hold it, so they had it propped against my foot just long enough to take a picture. Do you still have that picture? I still do. Yeah, I was like three years old or something. The thing was taller than I was. Oh, man, that would be awesome. <laughs> you should post that. That that would make a great picture. Um, did you get to ever shoot that? The Tommy no, gun? I know. The Tommy gun? No. No, it was just a museum. Well, we can fix that. <laughs> One of these days. We can yeah. get you on range uh, with a Tommy gun, definitely. I know people. That would be that would be fun. We can make. Well, you need to come to Nashville and do a book signing. We'll get you set up at Royal Range, um, very nice um, five star range here in Nashville area, and uh, they have authors that come in and do book signings and stuff like that too. I'd love it. Um, yeah, that and the fifty cal. I want to shoot a fifty cal. We can do that. You can shoot fifty cals at this range too. Uh, Perfect. Full autos. They got everything there. You'll you'll like it. So growing up, so that was your first, uh, your dad was an FBI agent. I'm sure that uh, he taught you proper gun safety rules with, I'm sure he had firearms around the house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was actually a firearms instructor for a while. Oh, okay. So did he ever take you out on any of those courses with him? Yeah, yeah. Though typically he had, so I learned to shoot from this old cowboy sheriff in eastern Oregon because my father didn't want me to, I mean, he helped me with my shooting, my accuracy and everything, but I don't think he wanted to be the one to teach me because he and I used to butt heads a lot. <laughs> yeah, so, right. um, but I remember this old guy, he like had a, I mean, the full on cowboy hat and the big gun on his hip. Big six and, shooter. Uh, oh yeah. He was, he was awesome. And he's the guy that taught me to shoot originally. Yeah. And then my, I remember, but I remember being out on the range with my dad and his 357 and he'd he'd put like four rounds in it because I'd always anticipate the shot. Mm. And uh, I remember him doing that and yelling at me like incessantly about <laughs> the front of the gun dipping when it, when I clicked on an empty chamber. All right. Jerking. <laughs> Expecting that recoil. So he, I'm sure he had the wheel gun then uh, being with the FBI. Uh, yeah. So he was always back he in the day. Even when they changed. How how long was he in the FBI? Twenty five years. Twenty five years. Wow. When when did he get out of it? What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, I, it's kind of hard to say. So he got in when he was he was he was like my younger than me when he retired. He retired at fifty two. Oh, okay. So he became he was a street agent. Then he went to D.C. Then he went to London, and then he became the the director of Interpol. So. All of that was sort of in the course of his 25-plus year career. As the director of Interpol, uh, I assume that he had a firearm during that I don't, uh, I don't think so. No? I don't know. So obviously London he didn't because um, you can't really carry firearms there. Um, yeah, I would say he pretty much like packed that up when he be stopped being a street agent. 
I mean, we had them in the house, but like you didn't carry a firearm to like to the JAG or Hoover building. You know, it worked in the executive suite. How do you get the director of Interpol gig? <laughs> how, did he, how did he get that? It comes from one of the agencies. So like it would for a while, as I recall, it was a long time ago. For a while, maybe it would be somebody from DEA, somebody from ATF. And it was the FBI's turn. And he was coming back from being legal attache, yeah. which is an FBI position. Um, and that they, there was a vacancy. The, the former had left. So he got that job. Interesting. Is he still alive? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So I, I guess you, do you talk to him quite often? Not that much about stuff like this yeah. anymore. I say he would be retired. a great source for your books. Yeah, he's been retired for a long time. I mean, the the FBI has really changed sure. since these days. He would be he would be great for if you're going to go do you know an era kind of book. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. You could do a character based on your dad. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of what my second question was: is do you have any military law enforcement background? And then through your father, the FBI, you've got you've got that. Did you ever have? Uh, you know, any desire to get into the FBI or that line of work? You know, I did. Um, and I actually, I think I filled out an application when I worked at the bank and I'd really thought about it, but that's a tough life. Um, and it had changed a lot, uh, from when my father had done it. Um, and so in the end I decided, against it that it wasn't really for me sure do you have brothers and sisters i don't no only child yep spoiled rotten (laughs) (laughs) uh when it comes to pop culture uh what is your go-to for just escapism whether it's a movie a book uh i don't know video games what's what is for me it's music music okay yeah i'm a huge music fan so i listen to it all day uh alternative mostly like Um, give me an example oh god i I mean i listen to some really weird stuff i was i was in a punk band when i was in college okay so i continue to listen to really strange stuff so like alternative punk kind of stuff yeah well not really punk anymore i mean i still listen to some of that stuff because it's out of my youth but I listened to this radio station on the internet a lot called Bagel Radio. Bagel and, Radio. Uh, Bagel Radio. So you should check that out. It has okay. all like really interesting new stuff and really creative stuff. Is this like on the the internet Beyond radio? The internet. Yeah. Okay. You just if you typed in Bagel Radio Bagel into radio. the internet, you could find it. Um, it pretty weird. I'll, I'll grant you. I have very strange taste in music, so and not for everybody. I like uh, I like variety. I don't. I can't say that I like just one certain genre of music. I like. I like what I like. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like everything from from death metal to Barbara Streisand. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I'm the same way. I have like a million radio stations I listen to. Like I'll listen to a whole day on bluegrass. But you know whatever. Yeah. I do. Plus it's good. You remember back in our day, they had the mixtapes. You would make. Oh yeah. You know yeah. the mixtapes. You know, I yep. still do that, but I do it digitally. I make digital mixtapes, and that's that's what I listen to. I put it on like shuffle, and yeah, I just listen to what I want to listen to that way. 
Exactly. Me too. That's one of the great, um, you know, technology advance, advancements that they made was, you know, being able to do that. And instead of getting, cassette, getting your yeah. cassette tapes all <laughs> pulled out and having to rewind them back up with your fingers. You remember, you remember doing that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just recently, um, my parents growing up, we had uh, you know, a record player, an old record player. Uh, Victor, uh, RCA yeah. Victor. Victrol. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just went into my mom's attic the other day, and it was still sitting there. Uh, but yeah, so I drug that out, and I've been uh, listening to some old vinyl. So it's bringing bringing back some old memories there. But really, I've enjoyed that. Vinyl's yeah. coming back. They keep telling me so. It's I, uh, been back for a long time. Yeah. I was in a Funny store how- the other day, and they're sell they sell record players again. I got to go up in my attic. I can, I've got all these like old punk records. There you go. That are you know like old first. Uh, they're probably worth like a you know a ton of money now. Yeah, but I guarantee you it wouldn't be worth as much than you just sitting down listening to them again, right? Yeah, I'd have to buy a record player. They're easy. Like, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. I was in a Books a Million the other day, and they sell them in Books a Million. Do they really? Yeah, they're only like it was only like seventy bucks. Oh, that's funny. I'll have to go pick one up because I know that would definitely bring back some memories. Yeah, and it's got its own like speakers that pop out, and then you can Bluetooth through it, and and every you play records, it's pretty cool yeah oh that's cool yeah i'll have to check that out so um movie wise uh what's your what's your favorite all-time movie oh my favorite all-time movie yeah when you Uh, just sit down and watch over and over and over again maybe the godfather oh yeah you into the godfather series oh yeah i like that movie a lot the first couple yeah um I don't, movies that I would watch over and over again, you know, it's funny. They're like cheesy. I don't know. <laughs> That's it's funny. Fine. Like, like how many, how many times have I watched the Godfather? Maybe three or four or like apocalypse now. That sounds a really highbrow. Mm-hmm. And I really love those movies, but I like, I play guitar. And so I don't like to pay attention to movies too much. Yeah. I, like I watch them, but it's kind of, I'm focused on something else. Yeah. So I love cheesy kind of action movie. So, so like if I thought about what movie have I seen the most times in my life, it would be either Dawn of the Dead or Predator. Ah, like Predator. Yeah. Because there are Predator's an awesome movie to just play guitar to because you can stop when you get to the really cool parts and you know, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what I do is, uh, you know, I'll be doing, I'll be, I need some background noise. So I'll put on something that's familiar. So I'll play a movie, you know, like Predator or, you know, Top Gun or, you know, something like that, that, that I know, and I'll have it playing in the background and then I'll, you know, do like when I'm editing or, you know, something like that, I still got to have like background noise. Yeah. See, for me, that'd be music. I don't think I could concentrate with people talking. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's even one of the reasons I listen to bagel radios. They don't have commercials because anytime Ah. a commercial comes on, like I have to turn off the sound or else I can't, can't work. I mean, I think commercials are going to be a thing of the past before long, you know, with these uh, streaming networks and whatnot. I can't sit down and watch a cable show anymore. Can't do it. No, it's incredible how many commercials there are. It's, it's aggravating. Yeah, <laughs> it is. So you're into outdoor sports, obviously, and you're into music. Um, if you could... No, I'll ask that one next. 
what is what is your next gotta have want to have piece of equipment for your favorite hobby what what's something your eyes like i'm gonna get that you know as soon as i go um, and get it. <clears throat> i just bought it to this morning oh you already did uh, okay yeah so it's a a bike trainer um that kind of connects to a game on the on the internet called Zwift where you can race against real people on real courses. Oh, cool. Um, but it's like a video game and it's yeah. all controlled. So you put your bike on and it, like when you go up a hill, it gets harder and you, your speeds Steep. are real. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could race people in a realistic way and I can ride with my friends That's at, their, cool. at their houses. But it's per, I've never gotten one because I have a snow bike. I have, well, I have like eight bikes, but like, so I, uh, I never really like to ride the trainer. It's horrible. But, um, with COVID it's the off season now and I, you know, you can't do much. Yeah. So I thought oh, I'm going to go sit in my basement and ride. And so is this something game. you can hook up one of your existing bikes to, or is it its own standalone yeah. bike? No, you put one of your bikes. You use your in, own equipment. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. That's so, real cool. Yeah. And so this one, you know, you can hook up with like a friend. Yeah, so that makes it in cool. a world and all the people riding it are real, and so you can hook up with your friend and like chat with them. So Lance Armstrong bike. might be on there, you know, one day. Yeah, you, you could is. race. You, you could he race. He is on there. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I'd do very well against him though. I don't know. I mean, he's he's human like the rest of us. Uh, barely. <laughs> barely. I've ridden. Uh, I've ridden with pros before, and uh, I'm not entirely sure I'd I'd call them human. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so if if money were no object, you know, money be damned, laws be damned, what was what would be something that you would want to possess? Uh, you know, I write about Mitch Rapp flying on a G550. He's got a private jet. Yeah. And I never really do that i mean even if i was super rich because it just seems really obnoxious but <laughs> well i say that but if i had the money i probably would but i would love to have a learjet, learjet. Or, or that's gold or, or that's a gulf stream but you the, any kind of super luxurious private jet and never go to the airport again and just hop on my jet and fly wherever i wanted to oh man love. some of these some of these jets are are outrageous i mean they're like a you know like a a penthouse suite or something the way some of these people oh, yeah. have them decked out. I used to, uh, work at the airport when I was in college and, uh, I worked on the private side. So we would get all the, you know, corporate jets and things came into RFBO and I would get to go on them, you know, clean them and whatnot and check them out. So I got to see some pretty cool, cool jets. So uh, Bill Cosby's came in one time, got to Ooh. get on his G5. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Air Force One. I've been on Air Force One. <laughs> oh, have you? See, that's the only reason I'd ever run for president. It's if for... I won, I'd hand it all over to the vice president and be like, I'm just in it for the sweet job. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here for the fringe benefits. <laughs> you can run the country. <laughs> so um, this one is typically uh, based on the, you know, spend the day at the range with, but I'll reword it. Um, during these time, you know, the corroded, uh, corroded coronavirus times here, uh, and our quarantine, 
Who is somebody that you would like to spend quarantine with? They could be a fictional character. They could be dead. You know, it could be a historical figure. It could be a group of people. Uh, that I'm really trapped with. Well, there's just that, that you want to you'd want to spend the day with. You know, typically uh, I ask the question is who would you like to spend the day at the range with? Um, it's kind of an interesting question because a friend of mine uh, has this. He has this as his his litmus test, and it's would you drive to Salt Lake with? Okay. And, he's, and he, so if he says I wouldn't drive to Salt Lake with that person, <laughs> that means that that's like his biggest insult. Right. Um, that'd be basically, would I be stuck in the car for five hours with that person? Yeah. Uh, gosh, who would it be? It could be a historical figure. It could be a fictional character. Um, typically right, we say I'm at the range. Really contra- I'm going to give you a super controversial one. A super um, controversial. Okay. That, yeah. I would say Barack Obama. Okay. Because I would really like to talk to him about his thought process on some of the things that, uh, he was involved in and, and that he did. I don't think that's controversial that. at all. I mean, that would be no? a, an interesting day to, of, to spend the day. I would like to spend a day with Barack Obama, too. Same, you know, same reason. So I would drive to Salt Lake. with. I would, I would agree to drive to Salt Lake uh, with Barack Obama. Okay. <laughs> what if it was a fictional character? Who would you like to? Oh, maybe like... <clears throat> ride across the Wyoming plains with Gus McRae from Lonesome Dove. Oh, I love that character. Okay. Um, the old Texas Ranger. Yeah. That hears stories. Heck yeah. yeah. I love all the Western stuff here. I, I actually have a friend whose father I was at a party with, and he's an old rancher here, and said uh, – um, that we were, they were talking about some old guy who had just died, and he said, I never liked that guy. His granddaddy used to ride with the Sundance Kid. And I thought, holy crap, I am so, so in Wyoming right now. Right. I want to hear that <laughs> totally story. Serious. That would be a great story to hear. Absolutely. So, yeah, the Sundance Kid would be another good choice. Yeah. <laughs> Though not a fictional character. What about a musician since you're into music? What musician oh, would you like? Um... Look, geez, there, God, there's so many of them. Uh, probably P.J. Harvey, um, who I have a huge admiration for her music and her ability to do pretty much anything she wants. And uh, I would, I've, I'd love to know how she, uh, how she manages that, like to do a punk album and then like a really lo-fi album and then the show tunes and. Like, but uh, I, have a, I have great admiration for people who can do anything. Like, I mean, it's, it's incredible to be able to do one thing well, but I've always been fascinated with, like, particularly musicians, because that's what I always really wanted to be, but mm-hmm. I have no talent. But like <laughs> musical talent, I just find baffling. Um, and it's funny, because people ask me about writing, which, I, which came easy to me, and I think it's the same thing when I ask musicians about things. And they, they, to me, it's amazing that they can do it. And to them, it's just, I don't know, I picked up the guitar. and just something you know, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Second nature. Very good. Well, you, you answered those questions good. You got through those fine. <laughs> they weren't too bad, were they? <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, so one more time, uh, give 
uh, your social meds, uh, your website, and the the name of the the book there, the Total Power. Yeah, so Total Power out now in hardback, uh, everywhere you would probably ever look for it. I don't think it's going to be too hard to find. Um, Kyle Mills uh, or www. I guess dot kylemills dot com is my website and Kyle Mills author. You can find me on kind of all the normal social media things. Not, you- not the not the kids stuff like TikTok. I haven't figured those out yet. No, that's just too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like two social media things to manage is enough for people our age, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, we got to get somebody else to manage it for us. So. Agreed. <laughs> um, and on your website, when you start your touring again, do you put your uh, your schedule on there? Yeah. Yeah. When I, hopefully, I'll tour again for the next book. So that'd be September. Okay. Uh, next September. Um, assuming the world is back to normal and we have a vaccine and people are flying around and going to events. And are you doing anything outside the, the Mitch rap series right now? Not right now. Okay. I, yeah, I, it's all I can do. There's so many imagine. authors now that can do that are doing like three, three books a year and stuff. I and I, I don't see how, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, my hat is off to them, but I can't do it. They got to have people. There's got to be other people. I, you know, involved. some of them just—they're just fast. I don't know. I like they, and they're—I think they're more dedicated than I am. They'll get up at 9 a.m. and write until midnight, and I just can't do that. Are you one of those? Right, it, the, you got to be in in the mood to write, or you have to sit down and force yourself uh-huh. sometimes. Sometimes you got to sit down, or I do I have to sit down and force myself. You know, you got deadlines and all that. You can't. The luxury of laziness and writer's block is. You know, it doesn't work anymore. So, uh, but some people, I swear to God, they don't, if they aren't writing their novel, they're writing a script or an article or whatever. And uh, it's it's amazing to watch. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview, Kyle. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on. Would love to have you on again. So when the, uh, the new book is getting ready to come out, make sure you get in touch with us. We'll have you on. We'll talk about it by then. You know, hopefully I've, I've knocked out at least five of the, uh, the Mitch Rap series. And, uh, I'll be yeah. slowly catching up. Maybe I should start at the back and at, at the most recent and work my way back. I don't know. No, 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 no. Start, start, at the, start with American Assassin and go watch him age. Okay. Because like, all those characters start to appear in his life and come and go and everything. So it's, you know, you're following a guy's entire life in chronological order. It's super fun. Very cool. I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, Leadheads, again, make sure you go show Kyle some love on his social medias. Let him know you heard about him here on the Talking Lead podcast. And uh, let him know uh, how you like his books. Yeah. So that does it for another episode of the Talking Lead podcast, Leadheads. Uh, make sure you go and support those that sponsor this show. And uh, you know, we, we appreciate that. They appreciate it. Uh, but until then, as always, keep your loved ones close. And your firearms closer. And don't forget all your Mitch Rap. <laughs> yeah, get caught up on the Mitch Rap series because I'm going to. Uh, it'll give us give us something to chat about on the social media, Leadheads. <laughs>